Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grindin' shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Hey everybody, welcome to the Fresh the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier, and we got a great guest for you today. We have Joel Christian Gill. He has a book coming up called Fights, One Boy's Triumph Over Violence, and he's also an associate professor at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing awesome. I'm doing awesome. Um, yeah, I really, you know... I got um, the book sent to me, and uh, I gave it a uh, read as soon as uh, it came through. And yo, I really enjoyed uh, fights, man. It was like, it was like, it was a bit, you know, it was a bit of a, you know, a wrenching of your heart going through all the stuff that you're going through on in this book, you know. So kind of like, um, you know, talk about your motivation in doing fights. Um. So I think the the. You know, it really starts like in the beginning of the book when I'm having that conversation with my son. Um, but it actually starts a little bit earlier than that because what happened is that I had I had read Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. But it talks about – in his book, he talks about like growing up black in America, it's like you have to protect your body. And Coates in that book really solidified things that I had never really thought about. Like I grew up in a small town in a small city in southwestern Virginia, and um, and it never dawned on the way he had talked about the idea. Like you always had to protect your body. Like there were places, there were whole neighborhoods I wouldn't avoid. Like I would, there was one mall that I wouldn't go to. You know what I mean? Like there were all these different things that I would just kind of avoid because people were shooting or like I was like, if I didn't have enough people with me, there were parties that I wouldn't go to. And he talked about that and it wasn't really concrete for me at the point, at that point. Um, it was, I was probably like an adult until I realized that not everybody's had a gun pulled on them, you know? So Right. I started thinking about this idea of like how, you know, like you have to fight all the time. Like I grew up having to fight all the time. And my son came home one day and he told me that there was some some kids fighting at his school. And I got in this conversation with him and I was like, man, I got to teach you how to fight. And he says and, and then I think in that in that one like five second span, like I like stop. And I just like think about all the fights that I've been in in my life and what was going on during that time. Um, in my life where I was actually fighting and how my son doesn't have any of that. And so I was like, and in that moment, 
I said that I had that conversation with him and I said, I got to teach him how to fight in my head. And then I asked him about fighting and he was like, I've never been in, been in a fight. And then I was like, you know what, man, don't worry about fighting. I fought enough for the both of us. You don't ever have to worry about it. But then when I started looking at like my life and understanding like what people would see when they saw me as a kid, like I was always like, he's a bad kid. He's a problem kid. But they never saw like all of the other things that were going on in my life. Why the purpose behind me acting out in the way that I did. Right. And I think that in a lot of ways, this is like a, for me, it feels like this is a love letter to kids who are, who were like me, who people just think are bad kids. And so like, that's, that was like, so part of it, it was like having this conversation with my son, responding to ta Coates between the world and me. But part of it is about me trying to help people understand that the kids that you see that you think are bad or acting out or wild or whatever are not, they're, that doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know, like well-adjusted, great kids don't have that issue. So it takes some time to like understand from where that kid is coming from. Yeah. And going through the story, there was this like, wow, like you went through like any, every sort of like abuse that could be possibly happen. You know, there was bullying, there was sexual abuse. There was, there's all this abuse. And I'm like, holy crap, like, how, you know, how can you, you know, really get past all of that, you know? What, you know, how, how did you deal with all of that? That was a lot of therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think um, lots of therapists along the way and, you know, accepting, you know, I think therapy is really interesting because, and I think the, the world would be a better place if everybody went through that process. Right. Um, mostly because I think it it's not about... You know, it's not about being a constant victim or saying that everybody is bad and you're and you're good or you're good and everybody else. You know, like it's not it's not I'm bad and everybody, you know, it's not any of those things. It's more about just like accepting where you are at this point and what you can do moving forward. And so for me, it's like and this is probably the oddest thing I think I tell people, you know, anybody who asks me about this. I'm like, I like who I am right now. I like wh where I've come in my life. I like, you know, like the person that I am. I like the way I think about things. You know, I like who I am. So I don't think I would change anything about anything that happened to me because all of those things made me who I am. And they're horrible. And they sh nobody should have to go through that to get to where they are. You know what I mean? I don't right. mean this in a way that's like everybody should go through some kind of terrible time in order to be a good person. But, you know, for me, it's about accepting, you know, who I am and forgiving the people um, in a way that you know, I don't forget those things, but I like who I am. So I, you know, I can't change that. Does that, does that make sense? I don't like, I don't, I don't want to like rewrite history. And I guess the best right. way to describe this is like, um, my father who died when I was five, um, you know, for, um, and I didn't write a lot about this in the book, but, um, from, from what my mom has said and, you know, what people have told me, my dad was like a gangster, right? He was like, he was a rough, like he carried a gun all the time. He was always in fights. It was like all this different stuff about it. Right. But when he died, he, he was like put on this pedestal and he became this different person. And, and because of who he, because of the idea of who he was, who he, who everybody said he was after he died, it made me a different type of man to my children. Right. Because I was parenting to this ideal that he would have been. Yeah. When in reality of that, he probably would not have been that person. Do you know what I mean? Right. 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 So, yeah. Like, and so like take and so like think it. So go go through that. Having my dad die when I was five is a terrible thing to happen. But we can't hope to change anything because we don't know what the outcome is for those things. So mostly it's been about acceptance and and um, understanding that. You know, I always hear those statistics about, you know, sexual abuse and, you know, four out of five people. I remember I used to hear those things like three out of, you know, two out of three people are said they were they've been sexually abused. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not telling anybody about this. So that number must be higher. Right. <laughs> right, right. So like it must be there must be more people in the world who've had experiences like mine than there are people who are willing to admit that. And I think that coming to terms with the idea that, you know, these things happen to me doesn't make me, you know, weak or soft or anything else. It's like, you know, like it's, it's the stuff that happened and it shouldn't have happened. And those people are wrong. But at the same time, I like who I am. So I'm, I'm OK with where I am in the world. 
In regards to the idea of acceptance, what do you feel like the the conversations need to be right now in regards to that? You know, what you know, what do you feel like? You know, is there a stigma that is attached that we need to get rid of? Um, do you feel like accepting shit that's happened in the past for people can help? You know, people in the future. You know, combat abuse. I think it, yeah, I think it does. And I think when people are honest about the kind of things that they've gone through and the kind of struggles that they've had, then it actually paints a much, it, it makes, it just makes things better. Do you know what I mean? Like, it right. just like accepting, you know, like most of this is, most of my work is about empathy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's about this idea of like building empathy for people. And, and it's not the simplistic, like, do unto others, right? It's understanding who that person is and do unto them as they would have, if they, as they would do unto themselves, which means you have to understand that person. And in order to understand people like that, it's really important to know thyself and understand how you go through the process of making decisions and the things that you've done so that you have a better understanding about how other people act in those situations so that you can understand from their point of view, right? right. Like a little kid who, you know, can't, doesn't, doesn't get to eat in the morning and they come into a classroom and they're like acting out, right? If you just look at that one situation and like that kid's acting out, they must just be a bad kid. It's already early in the morning. We like, what, what do they have to be upset about? Not realizing like that we don't see what happened before they got there. Right. We don't see the kind of stuff that happens before they got there. And I think the stigma and the conversations that need to be had had are like, you know, being sexually abused does not make you a, a type of person. Right. Right. You know, it, it makes you a victim of something that you need to deal with and come to terms with so that you can get past and be a, you know, a, a perfect, you know, a, a functioning adult in the world. But it doesn't make you a type of person. You still have the ability to choose. Like between stimulus and response, humans have ability to choose what happens, right? It's like you go into a meeting and somebody pisses you off and you can choose how you respond. You don't just punch them in the face. We choose how we're going to respond to that. And I think that that's what happens with children who are abused is to try to, you know, understand where they came from, understand what they're, what, you know, like go through the truck, go through the, the personal work to get past those things, to not be a victim and then to choose where they're going to be in life. I'm not going to let this thing define me. And that's what I did. I didn't let this thing define me. In regards to empathy and sort of trying to put yourself in other people's shoes, how would you frame the, you know, the modern historical lens of abuse and violence within the black community to people who might not understand? Well, I think um, one of the things that I would like to, I'd like to, I think I would dispel the the myth that it's like it's specifically to the black community. Okay. Uh, the, the projects that I grew up in were multiracial. Um, and the, the, the stuff that I was dealing with that I, I, you know, I don't like, I don't know any of those kids now. And I didn't like, we didn't like grow up to be fast friends, but I'm positive looking back on that, that those kids were suffering the same kind of stuff that I was given. And so I think this is an understanding that, you know, like, it's about proximity, right? Like most most crime is committed against people of the same color because they're in because we we're basically still a segregated nation, and so I think that um, within this this context, it's about it's a human problem. It's a it's a it's a human problem that I think we need to deal with. Like the the people that you know, it's 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 um it's a cycle for just people in general. Um, it's um, you know poverty education, frustration. It's a, it's a lot of these things that happen that push people to the breaking points. Um, and I don't want it to sound like I'm giving people excuses, but right. you can, you know, in well-adjusted societies where people are taken care of, this stuff happens less. Do you know what I mean? Like people are, when people are educated and people have good jobs and people feel safe and people feel secure, this stuff happens less. Um, but when you get, when you, when you're in situations 
Um, I just remember there's like, there's this really funny thing they used to say about the real world. There was like a joke when it first came out, like yeah. the very first reality TV. Yeah. They used yeah. to say, we're going to put a bunch of skinheads in a box and shake them up and see what happens. Of course they're going to get angry, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, of course that's going to happen. And I think sometimes that's what happens. You've pinned people up in places where they don't feel like they have any options and people act out violently. Right. Like I, like what Ta-Nehisi Coates says in um, Between the World to me is like, I need to have my power back. You know, like that's like that's reasserting of the power. Like I can't exert the power at home. Right. But I could beat down this kid on the street for looking at me wrong. Right. Because I can't do this. I can't do this at home. And I have no power or control over this. But I have control over this thing. Yeah. And I think that that's what I was running into a lot. You know, like this idea that you know like i remember i just remember like so many so many times i almost got into fights just by looking at somebody right and it was just and it's it's a really it's a really interesting thing like and i I talk about this with you know my friend rook in the book where i like i see that thing happen to him and as a result he becomes violent toward me because like he has this abusive parent at home his stepdad who was like beating the crap out of him yeah I just witnessed the one time, so I can't imagine how many times that happened before, right? And so, like, I, I actually saw that. And so, like, and I think that his animosity toward me from that point on was about me actually seeing him and actually really seeing how vulnerable he was in that moment and he wanting, like, to take control of that. And I think that, I think that we just, like, live in a society where we just, I, I don't know, man. Like sometimes I just think I have no hope for society. <laughs> I like right. we need to, we need to evolve. Like we, you know, like we need a next evol- level of elevation of evolution because we we look at these things and we don't we don't like deal with the problem. It's like we sweep it under the rug. Like nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about the issue. Like you see homeless people. Like I was just in Europe and in some of the largest cities, and I saw like maybe four homeless people. Right. Like in like all of like and then they, they have their homelessness problem. But I know that they that in some of those societies, they take they spend more time taking care of people than than we do. We're just like, you can't figure this out. Go figure it out. Where I think some people just need you need we need to help people like you got to give them bootstraps. Right. You can't pull yourself up out of bootstraps if you don't have the bootstraps. So how do we give people those bootstraps? I don't know. I'm rambling now. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. It's good. When going through, you know, doing this book fights, what was sort of going through your mind? What kind of emotions were uh, were you going through, you know, when sort of painting this picture of your life? Like, did you, was there anything that, um, that really struck a chord? Was there anything that you learned about yourself again? You know, what was sort of uh, the things going on in your head during the process of making this book? Um, my wife said I needed to go back into therapy because it was like I was reliving <laughs> some of this stuff. <laughs> um, you know, like how, like how, like a lot of it's fictionalized, right? So like, you know, some of the family members aren't like the actual people. Yeah. Um, and the friends in there, the only friend in, in the book that's real is Mike, um, um, who was my best friend who's in prison for double murder right now. But I think the connection between like, the things that were happening, it was like almost like looking at the, looking at my life from a different point of view. I was like thinking about how like I was bad in kindergarten and I was like hitting kids and like acting out, but my dad had just died and nobody really talked to me about it, right? So it was like, of course I'm going to like act out, right? And then I'm acting out, but then the teacher doesn't ever give me an opportunity to not be other anything other than what she saw. So like I was seeing all of these connections between like the things that would happen. And like, I think the biggest one when, um, the family neighbor, Mr. Charles, who actually is a real person, um, the, the farmer up the house that had a farm next to our family farm in, um, in Virginia. Um, and how like that little small act of kindness, like, how like big that was for me. Like I didn't even realize it until like looking back on it, like how like that was like a, like a place of solitude in all of the shit that was going on in my life at the time. Like I had this little moment where I could like feed this calf or I could help this guy, you know, get some cows across the road or like all these random things. And, um, like that was one of the, that was one of the things I remember just like, cause it, it was in that process of putting Mr. Charles in the book. 
I was thinking to myself, because it was like, it just seemed tough. It was like one terrible thing after another, and I was trying to deal with it. And I was like, I got to put some moments in here to show that I still, like I was still a little kid, and I still had some, I still had fun, and I still had some amazing things that happened yeah. that like are memory, memories that I cherish. And so I was thinking about it, and I started to think about Mr. Charles and like that moment and how he would bring out these, like he would just, like he would just legitimately just leave this bottle of milk for me to feed this calf, and like I almost, I started to cry at that moment because it was like something I had forgotten about, but then like remembered in that moment as I was trying to figure out how to put levity back into the book so that it wouldn't just be this, this slog of like one terrible thing after another terrible thing after another. Throughout the book, you're. Uh... You're using like these nature elements like drowning and fire to describe things. You know, you know, what, what what's your meaning behind that? Um, it was more so drowning was it's more um you know, like I like I've always had I mean I can swim now, I have a I have a pool in my house. But water makes me uneasy. And I think it has a lot to do with my dad dying. And like how like looking at like between that and that that really early moment when i'm like saying that most kids draw fire firefighters so i'll just be a firefighter yeah i think those two those two things were um were like so like they stuck in my head a lot and so i started to think about like how like how to explain what was happening to me and then making the metaphor of the drowning and like being a sponge and soaking up all of the stuff that's around me as a kid, because that's what kids do. And then that idea of like, instead of being the fireman, I became the fire, you know, as a direct relationship to what was happening in my life. Because kids, I think, are the ones are the only kind of people who can't take responsibility for their for their actions um, because they, they have no control. And so in that moment, you know, like. I used to look back at myself and say I was a bad kid, but not realizing like all of the stuff that was happening. So it was more about like just trying to give the metaphor of what was actually happening to me um, some weight to it. I guess that's, you know, that and, you know, trying to sound smart. (laughs) (laughs) You know, talk more about the relationship between you and Mike, because this is a thing where um, I think this happens a lot with um, in in certain friendships where one person moves on and the other one really doesn't. And then they end up getting into trouble because they don't have that friend around anymore. So kind of talk about that relationship. Um, yeah, Mike, it's really, it's like, it's tough. Cause like Mike was like a brother to me. I mean, he still is like, I, I talk to him all the time. I send him money. We communicate all the time. And, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because I felt like looking back at our lives and I really do. And I, I don't know, like we haven't, we've never had like a real heart to heart about like the stuff that was going on in his life at the same time, um, with that I had, like when I was going, cause I'm sure he was going through his own stuff too, but, um, he was all, he always seemed like a better person to, than me. Like he was way less selfish he was way less violent or prone to violence. I mean, he could fight, but he was just like, he was just like the dude that just like, I'm just not going to do that. It's not something that I want to do. He was just like so laid back and so chill. And then like, you know, I get married, April and I have kids. We lose touch for a little bit. Um, and then like he, you know, he go, he kills his girlfriend and her mom. And it's like, and I remember like, so vividly him saying to me when I got married, like, what am I going to do now with my life? And then he just, he just, he started hanging out with the wrong people. And he he hit like just before, like maybe like six months before he shot his girlfriend and her mom, he had gotten jumped at a, um, walking through the projects by like a bunch of random people. And they just tried to rob him. He wasn't like, he wasn't a drug dealer. He wasn't, he just like this random dude walking through the projects. He got jumped by like nine people and a girl and they stabbed him. And so he carried a gun after that because of that situation. And, um, and then, you know, and then he got into the issue with it. Then he got to the situation with his girlfriend and it's just like, um, you know, like it's, it's really difficult because I still have friends like, um, the people that G money is based off of are still doing the same stuff, right? They're still like, they're still like hustling or like working, you know, odd jobs here or there or trying to rap 
you know, like trying trying to trying to do a rap group. You know what I mean? They're still trying to do like heart, like yeah. they're still, yeah. you know, like this, they're still doing odds and end stuff. And it's like it's difficult because I can see it and I remember that mindset. But at the same time, I just like I don't understand like how can't why can't you get yourself together? But I don't know all of their stories either. Do you know what I mean? So like I have no idea what was going on in their lives at the time that makes them still propels them to that same place where they're stuck in that mindset. And I think it's, it's a mindset and I'm not, I don't know. I'm not, you know, with, with Mike, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and just to like give you like this, he's still like, he, for me, he's still the same person. And he said something to me cause we were talking about, we were in that rap group and I found an ex-girlfriend sent me one of our demo tapes that she had found, which I thought were lost forever. And I listened to it and I was just like, I got to tell Mike about this. And so we talked and I was like, you know, like, I think we were good. Like we could have, like if we had just taken it to another step, like if we just like left Southwestern Virginia and gone to New York with a demo and like just bothered people, we probably could have gotten some, like could have got a deal or something. And Mike who's sitting in jail for life says to me, no, I think we made the right decisions. Like he says it to me. And then right (laughs) after that, he goes, you know, I've got, I'm healthy. I've got friends. I've got family. He gets the only thing wrong about my situation right now is location. He's like, I feel bad about what I did, but I don't dwell on it. Like I feel bad about it, but I put it away and I, you know, I wish I hadn't done it, but I can't sit and think about it. He said, so the thing that I think about is what I have right this very moment. And I was just like, this dude is in prison and this is what he tells me. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Where, Where do you feel like that sort of like level of acceptance on his, on his part comes from. Well, he's super, he's super religious. Um, so, I mean, most of his messages to me starting in with Bible verses. And so I think for him, it, it's religion. For me, it was therapy. And I think, I mean, and I think for, for some people, religion can do that. Religion does the same thing in a lot of ways that I think therapy does. Like, like putting stuff away and not dealing with it is the same as giving it to Jesus. Right. Right. I'm just going to let God take this. Right. So like giving it away and like putting it out of your mind, if you believe in a higher power, is the same thing as like, I'm not going to deal. I'm, you know, I've, I've dealt with it. I'm not going to worry about this anymore. It's the same type of thing. And I think that's what that's what it is for him. And um, and like I said, I don't know what, you know, what are all the, the intricacies of happens in Mike's life. Um, but I'm sure there's some stuff that I don't know about. Right. That's that's the thing. There's still like people are acting out in a ways that I that I don't know. And um, but I think it's about I think for him, it's about religion and just acceptance. Like I did this terrible thing. Um, I think about it a lot. I think about her kids. I think about her family and I feel bad about it, but I don't dwell on it because there's nothing I can do about it to change it. The only thing I can do is move forward being a better person. One of the one of the funniest parts of the book is I really cackled when I when I read it was um, when the moving truck is there and it's called y'all moving. <laughs> yeah. Yo, I, I laughed so hard when I when I read that I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's like it was just like I don't know, like some some of that stuff kind of just like happens randomly. Like I'm drawing. I mean, because I drew. I had to do, I did the pencils for fights in about, um, eight weeks. So it was like teaching and then coming home and sitting in my studio and just drawing for eight weeks. And so it was just like things that just happen where you just kind of put stuff in there. And it's like, I don't know. Most people don't notice, but I put mouse holes on almost every pages, like Tom and Jerry mouse holes and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, um, it's just like little things like that. I don't know. I was thinking U-Haul sounds like y'all. I'm from the South. So y'all moving sound made it made sense to me. Like that was, that was, you know, like that was great for me. It was just, it made sense. Like how important was it to like, you know, put them little sort of funny things into the story? Very important. Like I said, it's a, it's a slog, um, reading fight. I mean, everybody just read it. It's like, I cried all the way through this book. Um, you know, like friends of mine would read it. Um, I have a, a really good friend who's who's a comic book artist and professor, um, John Jennings, who's a, um, you know, he like, <laughs> he was like, I read it twice, cried both times. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like, so it's important to like, 
it was important to like give people spots where it was just like this is real like to like like you just said like laugh out loud like to like you know chocolate sandwiches like that was like the greatest discovery of my childhood like chocolate chocolate sandwiches was like that and he-man those were the best things that i can remember from my childhood and when mike showed me chocolate sandwiches i was like done right knowing not knowing now that like you know i go to europe right because i was in europe for for christmas break and it's like that's what they eat for breakfast like basically nutella is a chocolate sandwich right it's like it's so common there but for me it was just like that's all we had in the refrigerator was was um was bread and like you had a you had a birthday party in January and no no groceries in February so the only thing you have left is chocolate so like putting those little things in there so that people would laugh i think is really important because you know like or like there's you know there's a moment when um it's kind of a sad moment, but I wanted to put that little thing, that thing in there, because I had that fake Michael Jackson jacket when I was a kid. Yeah. Because, um, you know, like, there was all, like, the real Michael Jackson jackets, and then there were all the bootleg ones, and I had one that had, like, studs on it, and it looked sort of like a beaded jacket, but it wasn't quite a beaded jacket, and so, and it was, like, pleather, so it was, like, if it got real hot, it was, like, <laughs> it would stretch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. definitely pleather, and, um, and so, like, and I'm trying to play with the other kids and they run off and they're like, that ain't even a real Michael Jackson jacket. And I'm like, yeah, like that's, that's a thing that people would say all the time to you. Or the thing about, you know, the Bobos, which is what we used to call um, no name shoes, Bobos. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like random stuff like that. But, um, you know, like, I don't know, like, it's just like, there was just, I was just trying to remember stuff from my childhood. Um, things that were funny, things that were, um, that were terrible, like the passive things that people would say, like the fact that like every adult when I was like, my kids didn't hear me curse. None of my, my son is 17. He's maybe heard me hurt. He, my son is my youngest is 17. I've got four kids. My youngest son has probably only heard me curse a handful of times. Yeah. Right. But my daughter, like, and, but they've never, like, I don't curse. didn't curse in front of my kids. Right. Until they turned 18. And, uh, but it was like, when I was a kid, like everybody cursed, right? It was like it was like the it was like the the thing everybody did, and it just always felt wrong to me. Like I don't think cursing is bad. I just think it's cursing is bad in front of kids for whatever reason. That's just like my moral. That's my conservative value right there. Don't curse in front of kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, you know, like like how much people would curse and like the things that they would say. Like you know, it was a common thing that was that people would say to me. I remember when I was little, it was like. You're my nigga if you don't get any bigger. And if you get bigger, you're just going to be my bigger nigga. Like, that was, that was the thing that people used to say to me when I was a kid. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Another thing I noticed, you know, throughout the book was that, you know, whatever city that you were in, you know, I felt like there was like an authenticity of, you know, with the visuals, you know. Talk more about that, you know, making sure that we kind of get drawn into the whole world and scenario of where you were at that, that at that time. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that there was a clear demarcation because I grew up the little like the little town that I grew up in was about 30 minutes from the city. And um, in that little town, I wanted to make sure that people had a clear like this is not like an urban environment. It's like a little small town in the south versus when I moved to the city and I'm like, all of a sudden I'm in like a metropolitan city area where I'm like, you know, there are city blocks and then there are like, you know, like, you know, whole like rows of section eight housing and like there's a different place. And so I really wanted to talk about like, you know, because I had been in, like, like I remember when I was little, when I, I was really young and I watched stuff and, it, and anything that came on about New York or any big city, they would talk about a block. And like, I grew up in a place until I was 13, that I didn't even know what a block was. I was always like, what do they mean five blocks? Is that, what's the measurement for a block? <laughs> like, I, I didn't understand it. It just didn't make any sense to me. Right. And then I moved to the city, and then I was like, oh, a block is from one street to the next street, right? It's a city block. Like, it's the block of the, it's the block in by, like, streets. I had no idea. And so, like, I wanted to make sure that there was a clear demarcation between, like, little small town living and then big city living and, when I say big city, the city was only like 200,000 people. It's not huge, but it's big enough to have multiple projects, you know, multiple, you know, like there's a whole street 
um, that everybody used to hang out on is where all the drug dealers used to hang out at, um, that we used to basically all like avoid my crew did mostly because we didn't sell drugs. Um, we just kind of chased girls and for whatever reason, I don't know if this was the case when you were growing up, but drug dealers always had the best looking girlfriends. Right. (laughs) So, So if you had like, if you could, you know, if you, if you had game, you could always get, you know, a girl and, you get some drug dealer's girlfriend, and then you got to avoid whole areas of the town because that's where the drug dealer's crew is. So, um, but yeah, so people used to, you know, they, there was that city had a had a street that everybody used to go at and just like open up their cars. They all like had jeeps, and they would open up their jeeps and like play loud music and party and drink and um, smoke and you know do all that stuff. But um, I just wanted to make sure that there was a clear dif- difference between like the country and the city. What what do you hope people get out of uh, reading this book? And what sort of discussions do you want to use this book to get into when you're, you know, whether you're doing, you're traveling, doing panels or whatnot? I want them, I want people to talk about how the things that people are going through, we have no understanding about, and and if we can at least start in that moment, like I have no idea what happened. To that, like I was like I was talking about that kid in the morning, right? A kid comes to school, he's like in third grade. He comes to the day, he comes to school, and he's already acting out, and it's like eight thirty in the morning, right? And like what most of the adults in that situation will see when they see that kid is a kid who's acting out. And what I want them to do is be able to take a step back and go, okay, let's try to find out what's going on with this kid. Let's let's see where we can help him because kids don't act like this in a vacuum. Like sociopaths and psychopaths are not very common, right? They are, they do exist, but they're not as common as people think. And so if we all accept that that's the case, then we have to accept that there are kids who are going through stuff that we don't understand and we need to try to figure out how to help them and not put them in a box that soon. Because I was put in that box. Like I remember um, right when I got out of college, when I got out of grad school, I went back home and I was teaching at a community college. And um, there was a woman in my class who was a, she was a traveling um, pharmaceutical salesperson. She wanted to learn how to draw. So she's coming back to school to learn to draw. So she's taking my class. And so she's probably like 15 years older than me. And um, so she's telling me, she was like, oh, my husband is the, um, my husband is the principal of the school in, in the town that I grew up in. I'm like, oh yeah. I was like, I went to that school. I'm like, Telling her all the stories about the school that I remember, all the good stuff. I ain't tell her the bad stuff. <laughs> and um, and she goes, "Where'd you grow up?" And I told her where I grew up, which was a was a apartment complex called Candlewood. And so she goes off, right? And then she comes back next week because it was a weekly class. And she comes back the next week, and this is a white lady. She goes like, and so she's like looking at me with like incredulity. She's like, "You grew up in Candlewood? Oh my God! And now you're a professor? Like, how is this? Like, <laughs> she was so blown away. <laughs> <that> <laughs> these kids that are growing up in those situations, you don't, you don't, you like you, you don't like people. People have a tendency not to see their potential. Right. right. They just see them in that moment. And I'm saying what I want people to do is to see those kids and not see that moment, to try to look past that moment, to try to have empathy for that kid, to try to figure out what it must be like. Because like I said, that kid that gets up at 8.30 in the morning and he's going to this inner city school or this rural country school where he lives in a trailer park and he doesn't have any food. And like he comes to school, he's angry because he can't eat. And there's a kid who has a nicer lunchbox than them. And they just hate them because their life is different than theirs. And they just want to fight them, not because that kid has done anything, but because their life so sucks and they need to take control over it. I want people to see what that looks like because that's a real thing. And I know that because I went through that. All all of this, all these things that you experienced, how did that you know, help you when you became a father, you know, what did you do when your kids would act out? Um, I mean, I talked to my kids. Um, I was net, we, my wife and I were both never like, we, we wanted to be present like 100% of the time. And that was one of the things that I think, um, like we spent a lot of time doing, like when I went to grad school, um, as an example, um, 
my wife was working full time and I was going to grad school and I was working part time and I was a TA. And so I would get up at three o'clock in the morning so that I could go to the studio and work for eight hours so that my kids had to spend the minimum amount of time with the daycare, with a, with a sitter so that they could spend more time with us. And so I would go, I would get up in the morning, I would leave, my wife would get everybody to school, a sitter would come, I would spend eight hours at the studio and I would come back so I could get my older daughters off the bus and be with my younger two kids. And we did that a lot, like my wife would work a different shift than I would work. We wanted to be present, um, mostly because we just wanted them to have us in their lives because my wife and I suffered a lot of the same kind of things which was like parents who were doing other things. My mom was working and taking care of my grandmother and she was caught up in that. My wife's mother was working and taking care of people who was caught up in those kind of things. So we had all these different things that we wanted to make sure that our kids experienced, you know, like sitting down at the table and eating, eating dinner. I remember one time somebody told me when my, my daughters were in high school that like they said, for a liberal, you sure do raise your kids like a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was like, my kids come home, we're going to sit around the table, we're going to talk about our day, we're going to eat food. But at the same time, as teenagers, I wasn't like, you know, like, I wasn't like putting like hard boundaries on my kids. I was like, here's, here are the results of your actions. So when you make a choice, you have to take responsibility for your actions. And so as opposed to shaming my kids or, you know, telling them like, you can't do this. I'm like, if you choose to do these things, you lose trust with us. If you choose to do these things, you you change relationships with other people. If you choose to do this, you might like so we had all these problems. It got to the point where my kids would actually have their friends come and talk to me and my wife when they were like in trouble to try to do something. Like, if you're thinking about doing this, you should go talk to my mom and dad. They can explain it to you. <laughs> so uh, it was just about like not being is being judgment free so that my kids could so that our kids could talk to us. That's that's really that's really what it was all about. It was like having conversations and not um, not letting our kids run wild, but having like just having conversations, treating them like people as opposed to like little things that like I was always told children should be seen and not heard. And I think that's just like that sets up a real bad relationship with kids. Um, so it was more about like getting kids to understand there's a proper time to talk. You know, like I didn't want my kids to ever think there was some kind of power dynamic that meant that I was like better than them. Right. It's like I am in charge and I have to make decisions, but that doesn't mean I'm a I'm better. So that's pretty much what we. You know, you mentioned before that abuse and violence kind of, you know, a lot of that happens regardless of, you know, race, the types of people or whatnot. But do you still think that there is sort of you know, thoughts, myths, stereotypes within the black community in regards to abuse and how it should be, you know, dealt with that still exist that need to be, you know, taken care of or need to be, you know, like taken away from, you know, the thought process of people. The thing that I would, I would hope would happen is I, I, I feel like more men should come forward with the stories of abuse um, yeah, it's because I think, cause I think it helps, right. It helps to see, you know, like, um, I remember when my agent and I were interviewing publicists, um, and I interviewed this publicist and she said after, and we didn't end up hiring her, but we, she said after reading the story that she saw me differently, she said, cause you're like this big guy that I would have been afraid of. You know, like in the street, not like a race. Cause she was, she was a part, woman of color. So it wasn't like, it, it was just like, I'm a man and I'm, you know, and I'm like six feet tall, you know, right. I'm a big guy. She was like, I would have been intimidated by you to see this story and to hear this thing coming from you makes you, um, makes it more vulnerable. It makes it more powerful, this story. And I think it's kind of like, I'm not trying to equate myself to any, any, in any greatness, but I think it's like, when people that we revere in real life come out and say that they've like they've done something right whether it's um you know i don't know like it's one of those things where it's just like i think more more men specifically more black men should talk about the issues that they've dealt with growing up and be vulnerable because toxic masculinity is killing us as a society and this is not just black people this is like you know masculinity means something different for white men than it does for black men. Right. But it's all still toxic. This idea that you have to be tough and you can't cry and you have to, you know, like, you know, you have to be a, you know, man up and like, take it. I'm like, 
no, like <laughs> shit happens and like you want to cry. You know what I mean? Like that this, that doesn't mean you're not a man, right? Because like shit happens and you want to cry about it and you feel emotional. You should be emotional. Like, yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, and it goes, it's the same thing with women. Like, you know, with black women, like people have a tendency to like black women are strong. Like black women are just like everybody else, right? There's no like, they don't have to be there's the myth of the strong black woman like why can't she just be herself like she can be weak and strong and like weak and cry and you know what i mean like i think the more we talk about these things and the more open we openly we talk about these things the more people can be more of who they are and when i say more of who they are i mean just 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 pure versions of themselves because the more we hide this stuff and we put on these false faces and these like fronts, um, it makes us point fingers. Like we're better than that person. I'm better than this person. They're better than that person. But in reality, we, we all are more alike than we are different. And I think telling the stories that I'm trying to tell, whether it's black history or my own personal history, um, it's about making the stories it's about making the stories more human. And I think that's the most important thing. Like this is a human, like my story is a human story. My story is not unique, right? I think there are very few black men who are coming out and saying like, I was sexually abused as a child. Um, and, and I dealt with that and how I acted out as a kid going, going through that. There are very few people who are saying these things, but I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's necessarily unique. I think that the, the unique thing is that I'm talking about it. And I think that's the thing that we need more people to do because we need to see that there are more people that are, that are out there who are struggling with this and how they dealt with it because it gives people hope. Right. So, um, you know, fights is gone, coming out. What's, you know, what's next for you? What's next? Um, um, I'm working on another volume of Tales of the Talented Tent. Um, which is a series that I do that it's a biography of um, somebody who we don't know about in history. I did a story. I've done stories about Bass Reeves, who was the most successful U.S. Marshal in American history. Bessie Stringfield, who was the first black woman to crisscross the United States on a motorcycle. And now I'm doing a story on Robert Smalls, who was the first, um, who was the, um, who stole the Confederate U planter that he was enslaved on and sailed it through confederate waters to the union and then two years later two or three years later he bought the former plantation that he was he was um enslaved on and let his master live there um just an all-around badass and you know like so i'm doing a story about robert smalls and some other stuff that it's not it's in the works i can't really talk about it yet but i've got you know some some bigger things that are out there are going to happen as well but Talented Tenth is always a big thing. I love these books. Um, Strange Fruit and Tales of the Talented Tenth are the books that like started me making comics. And um, and if they, you know, like it's 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 like comfort food. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm just gonna like, I'm just gonna nestle into reading and going down the going down the rabbit hole of like obscure black history for a minute because that's like the place that like I live. And then I'll do some other stuff. So yeah. Now, how important and what do you get out of, you know, telling these stories, these historical stories about, you know, things that happen, people that, you know, really doesn't get talked about? I think it's the same thing that I was saying about fights is that the more we tell these stories, the more we normalize being black in America. Um, because the thing that's really interesting about the current conversations about being black in America or like this, like the ongoing conversations about being black in America is that there is an otherness to my skin that I can't not talk about it. Right. Right. You know, like you get these black conservatives who occasionally will say, if you just stop talking about race, it'll go away. <laughs> no, not realizing that they are legitimately on television talking about the race issue because somebody wants to talk to them about it because they are a black conservative. Exactly. Like, not even like looking at the idea that they are talking to me because I'm black. Like this whole thing is about accepting that hip hop and baggy pants are just as American as country music and um, baseball. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is an Ameri this is an American thing. 
like we have like pockets of different types of culture. We eat different foods in different places and, you know, like there are different things, but we are all united by this one sort of like behemoth American culture that is, that is driven by black people, Latino people, like LGBTQIA plus people, white people, like all of these people are contributing to society, but only some people get to benefit from being the, like the true American, right? There are some people who can, there are only a few people who can benefit from that. And the more I can tell these stories, the more I can make these stories of black and brown people ubiquitous, the more that I can, that, that's what, that's, that, that could be my legacy. I want to make sure that people understand these stories are just as American as baseball and apple pie. Nice. That's nice. what I get. And they're fun to draw. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Joel, it's been great talking with you. Uh, so much, you know, you know, I love the book. It um, definitely, you know, I laughed in a few places, but then sometimes it was a little bit of a gut punch. Um, definitely, you know, people should go out and, uh, and definitely check out fights. Uh, where can people get more information about what you're doing and, and about the book and about uh, anything else? So you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, on Instagram, I'm Joel Christian Gill. At on Twitter, it's at JCG007. Um, you can also go to my website, which has all the same stuff on it, which is JoelChristianGill.com, which has all of like my projects. I put a lot of like I post a lot mostly on on um, social media. I post like process um, of like what I'm in the process of doing. So like, even like the project that I'm not talking about, I've posted some images of the secret project that I'm doing. Um, that's not out in the wild yet. Um, so you can see some of that stuff all on my socials and social media and on my, on my um, website, which is joelchristiangill.com. Hey, yo, thank you for listening to this episode of fresh is the word hosted and produced by myself, Kelly K fresh Frazier empowered by anchor at anchor.fm slash fresh of the word. Intro theme music by Foulmouth, Shimmy Bango, and Knox Money. Fresh of the Word is available on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Fresh of the Word, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh of the word. Follow Fresh of the Word on social media on Twitter at Fresh of the Pod, on Instagram at Fresh of the Word Podcast, and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fresh of the word. For more information about Fresh is the Word and our other podcasts, Breaking Records and Renaissance Soul, and a collection of pop culture articles and reviews, please visit freshisthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the Word.